Amen. Amen. Thanks. Grab a seat. So I shared that uh, God led us into foster care and adoption, and I'm going to be honest. It took about three to four years of God kind of poking me with the foster care thing for me to even consider it. Um, my aunt and uncle were foster parents growing up, and I have just heard horror stories, okay? I'm sure you guys have too. And so I'm like, God, I'm not doing that. I've got four kids of my own. Like, I don't need to do that. And we'd been youth pastors for years, but just like Jesus tends to do, he pushed through. And so um, in, in about 2011, the fall of 2011, we were about to get our very first foster placement. And man, we were pumped because we had started training the fall before. And we'd gone through a full three months of training with this agency, Random Fact. We actually met Wayne and Nikki Chandler, if you know them in this church, at that training um, and became good friends. Aaron and Wayne were like the resident comics for the entire training at our table, annoyed that teacher to death. Anyway, so at the end of that training, we just couldn't shake. We just didn't feel like that was the right agency for us. So we changed agencies, went through a whole other set of training. And so by the time we're getting licensed that October, we are like chomping at the bit, man. We are ready. And we're ready for a sibling group because um, what we really felt called to do is take in larger groups of siblings that usually get separated in the system. So any group of kids that's three or more that is related tends to never get placed together because most homes just aren't prepared to take in that many kids. So we came to the system and said, hey, we want to take in sibling groups. They said, you've already got four, six is the limit. And we're like, yeah, there's got to be something you can do about that. So we got licensed as a group home so we could basically take as many kids as we had beds for. And at this point, we were licensed for four. So we had space for four. We get a call, sibling group of four. Um, there are three boys and a girl ranging from age two up to age nine. And they're living in a homeless shelter right now because they had not been able to find a home for them. And usually when you're foster parents, you get a call and you have to answer right then. I mean, they can show up at your door in an hour or two. But they said, well, this, it's recommended for these kids that you do a pre-placement visit. And we're like, what? we don't know what that means. So plan for that. Don't hear anything. Two days later, they call and say, we're bringing the kids today. And I was like, well, okay, we'll go with it. We'll go with it, man. We're ready. You know, we're ready. We had no idea what was coming. No idea what was coming. And honestly, there was nothing that would have prepared us for these kids that were about to hit us because we had them for two hours. And I had to use my training to physically restrain a five-year-old boy because he was about to knock himself out or someone else. Um, within 24 hours, I had been bitten, kicked, punched, had toys thrown at my head. I'd been called names I hadn't even heard in R-rated movies. And um, these kids were completely out of control, too. We were on psychotic medications. They hadn't told us that. It was a rough three months, okay? Some of the hardest months of my life. And before you get all anti-foster care on me, this is not the norm, okay? They literally told us afterwards, this is the worst case scenario. We're so sorry. Just nobody knew. Nobody knew about these kids. Nobody knew how rough they were, what was going on. So one night, I am praying, and I'm just crying out to God because I am broken. And, and it's not because I'm getting beat up or all these things are happening. Quite honestly, I'd never felt closer to Jesus. I was literally taking upon myself the punishment for someone else's mistakes. Never closer to Jesus than that. It wasn't that. I, I could not understand how these kids had been living in a home where their mother and grandmother could train them to hurt people and, and hurt each other just miles down the street from me. How had nobody done anything about this yet? And as soon as I'm talking to Jesus about that, he says, you've been ignoring them. 
You have been ignoring the ugliness of this world and acting like it doesn't exist, so you've been investing, Sarah, in this situation. And it's finally time that you're doing something about it. And quite honestly, I broke. I knew. He was right. I wanted to act like those kids didn't exist, but they did. And I had to learn this lesson. And I'm sharing this with you this morning because I think this is an ongoing problem for the people of God. We forget. We forget. We forget the ugliness of the world is our issue. We forget the mess that we used to live in when we get everything together because of God's grace. And so this has been going on for generations. So we're today going to go into the scripture and we're going to look back at the people of Israel and how this played out with them. So if you would go with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And if, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles all over the place under the seats. But I encourage every single one, if you grab a phone, tablet, Bible, something, engage with the scriptures this morning and read along with me, even if it's in a different version, okay? We want to we wanna read the scriptures together. So before, hold that spot, before we read it, I want to give you guys a little bit of background if you're not familiar with Deuteronomy. So what's happening right here is the people of Israel are gathered around Moses. Moses is about to die. And the people are about to go into the promised land and take over the land that God has promised to them with Joshua as their new leader, Joshua being Moses' protege. And before Moses dies, God says, Moses, I want you to review this law with the people. We're going to stand together on this mountain where they can see the promised land, and we're going to go over this covenant that I have made with the people because things are about to get crazy. They're about to go to battle, and I want them to remember. I want them to remember this covenant that we're making So we're going to start right there in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, Israel, and be careful, to do them, that it may go well with you, and you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, You'll bind them as a sign on your hand and as the frontlets before your eyes. You'll write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So God's speaking to these people who've been wandering in the desert for 40 years and they're about to head into this land that is occupied by really jacked up people. People who do things like set their children on fire alive to, as worship to a God or they set up orgies and prostitutes as part of their worship to God, okay? So these people are pretty messed up and God's trying to draw them in and give them these important instructions. So I'm a kid's pastor, so I get to push you guys a little bit. So we're going to do some demonstrative learning. You all good? You're like, dear God, what's she going to say? What's she going to make us do? I'm not going to make you dance or anything. But I want you to think back to when you were a kid. Put on your biggest imagination, okay? Because I want you to close your eyes. Everybody in the room, close your eyes. Go with me. I'm not going to trick you, okay? Close your eyes. And put yourself in this story, okay? You're on this mountain. Moses is talking. You're surrounded by your family and your neighbors 
And Moses is about to die. The leader that has been the leader of your life, all your life, is about to pass away. And there's like this tangible energy in the air because just over the river, you can see from this mountain, you can see the promised land and it's awesome. And you've been living in this dry, crappy desert and eating dry bread and water and you see over there and the grapes and the milk and everything is amazing over there. So you're just waiting. And Moses is like, okay, I'm gonna give it to you. And you get out your notebook and your pen and you're like, I'm gonna soak it up, I'm gonna soak it up. And Moses says, remember who God is, guys, remember. Rehearse his word. Keep it in front of you all the time when you stand up, when you lay down. And teach it to the kids. And you go, what did he just say? You can open your eyes. Did he just say teach to the kids like I get the word part and I get the remember God part. Why are you telling me to talk to kids? I don't have kids in my family. I don't have kids. Teaching kids isn't really my gift. Somebody else is better at that. I'm out of that stage. My kids have grown up and they have kids of their own. Like, it's not my thing. So in case you're not seeing how odd this is, let me put it in a modern perspective for you. Let's just imagine that you came in this morning. Pastor Aaron is up here preaching and you're like, man, it's time. I need to give my life to Jesus. Control. Like, I've messed everything up. I'm at that surrender moment. You come forward. You pray with Aaron and you're like, Aaron, I want my life to be different. Dude, just tell me what to do. Just give it to me. I'm a sponge. I just want to hear from you. And Aaron says, all right, are you ready? Are you ready? I'm going to tell it to you. Remember who God is. Keep his word in front of you all the time, all the time, all the time. Start teaching kids and students. Would you think that was a little weird? I thought it was weird. I was reading this scripture, and I'm like, man, God, sounds like you just called everybody to kids ministry in that story. Guess what he did? See, we have relegated impacting the next generation to be a ministry of our church instead of being the ministry of the church, which is what God made it to be. God didn't think it was odd. God made every single one of us to do this. Let me give you a little bit of a picture of what we have in front of us as our job, okay? So up here on the screens, you're going to see some results from a Pew Research Center study that happened in the last couple of years, and this is what it shows is that 36% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 identify as atheist, agnostic, or, quote, nothing in particular when it comes to religion. And here are the percentages for all the other generations. Do you see a trend? Every single generation growing up in the United States is growing farther and farther away from God. Here's something else to consider. A Barna research study shows that Nearly half of all Americans who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior do so before the age of 13. Two out of three before they're 18. Only 23% after their 21st birthday. So, again, let's make this practical. If you are in this room and you committed your life to Jesus before your 21st birthday, will you stand up, please? People, don't be afraid. Before your 21st birthday, stand up. Some of y'all aren't even 21 yet, you're babies. It's a good picture. Thank you, you can have a seat. The most important years that we have to impact the next generation are before they turn 21. And guys, we're blowing it. We're failing. The numbers don't lie. Uh, It's it's our problem. This isn't somebody else's issue, it's the church's issue. Our country's lack of faith, it's not somebody else's fault, It's, it's our problem. Racial division in our country, that's not somebody else's. That's ours. It's our problem. Okay, all the sexual abuse and the scandal, our problem. Homophobia, 
sexual confusion, these are our problems, not somebody else's. And we're blowing it. We're blowing it. I would present to you that if you want to judge and rant and rave about the state of our nation, we should do that in the mirror instead of on Facebook because it's not anybody else's issue, it is our own. And it's time that we own it. Everything that we see going on is a reflection of ourselves. And I, I know this is hard. I know it's hard to hear. But it's even harder for Jesus to deal with as well. The moment that we forget our role in the brokenness of the world is the moment we've forgotten where Jesus took us from. Everything he wiped out of our lives. And when we forget that, we forget the incredible amount of grace and mercy that God has given to us. And when we forget that, we cannot pass that on to another generation. We've forgotten. We've forgotten where we came from. We've forgotten the mess Jesus pulled us out of to put us where we are right now. We've gotten comfortable, and so did the people of Israel. So that's, that's the bad news. It only gets better from here, okay? I promise. You still with me? Because Jesus gave us the solution a long time ago. So we're going to go back to the scriptures. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to see what God told his people to do. So starting in verses 4 through 5, God says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Reserve God's space in your life. Reserve God's space. I love, I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. Any Seinfeld fans? In the house? You can be proud of sorry. There's this awesome scene from Seinfeld that if I were more technologically savvy, I probably could have shown you this morning, but um, where Jerry walks into this car rental place, and he's like, hey, I have this reservation for this car, and she looks it up and goes, oh, yeah, we don't have that car available, but I have a reservation. Yeah, I understand what a reservation is, and he says, no, I don't think you do, because a reservation means I reserved the car you say you don't have. Have you ever had this happen to you? You reserve something, you go to the trouble of reserving a table at a restaurant, and then you end up waiting for 30 minutes anyway. What's the deal? And this is what Jesus does. We come to him and we want a solution instead of a savior. We want God to fix our hearts. He wants to own our hearts. He wants to occupy and have a reservation in our heart. We can't just come to him for advice when we need it. We have to bring it all. Reserve God's space in your heart and in your life. Number two, repeat God's word. Verses six through nine say, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you go to bed, when you get up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. One commentator says this, I loved it. By communicating our knowledge, we will increase it. In fact, science echoes this, and I'm about to give some of y'all bad news, I'm sorry, but Science has found that the oldest firstborn sibling tends to be, on average, the most intelligent of all of the siblings. Sorry, babies. <laughs> all the older siblings are like, I told you, I told you. And this is because they teach, right? They have to learn everything on their own, and then they start passing that down. They also found that students who teach other students test better than students who just learn for their own benefit. We learn when we teach other people. Some of us have been sitting here, and we come every single week and go, man, I feel like I'm sick. I feel like I'm not growing. Well, who are you talking to about your faith? Who are you talking to about the word of God? 
Do you just come in here and you think this is gonna be enough? No, 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 you gotta practice. You gotta tell other people. You gotta get in a small group and start wrestling with some of this stuff. Your faith is not a solo act. This isn't a one team thing. This is you're meant to do this with other people. And in the next generation, they, they need to hear that from you. They need to see it in you. Think about this. This, this struck me this week, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We don't even understand our own hearts, our own intentions, but the word of God does. And in a world where truth is real slippery and sometimes seems really hard to find, the Bible promises it's sharp. It's going to get you. When you need that truth, it is there. Just get into the word, repeat it. If I were going to create my own Sarah version, which you know I'm going to, um, for you, I would say it like this. Put it on your walls and your refrigerators. Talk to your kids about it. Share with your neighbors and the cashier at Walmart. Tattoo it on your skin if you want to. Let God's word be as much of your daily life as possible. Get that word. Rehearse it. Repeat it. It's powerful in your lives. Number three, remember God's provision. Verses 10 through 12 says this, the Lord your God will soon bring you into the land he swore to give you when he made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a land with large, prosperous cities that you did not build. The houses will be richly stocked with goods you did not produce. You'll draw water from cisterns you did not dig and eat from vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. When you've eaten your fill, be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from the slavery in the land of Egypt. My kids <laughs> cringe whenever I say the phrase I'm about to say. Um, I was reading an article, <laughs> and whenever I said that this morning when I was practicing this in here, Micah back there was like, oh, that's the sound I hear. Mom's reading an article again. She's going to change our diets on us or change something around, reorganize the whole kitchen because she read an article. But I did read an article about American Airlines when they first were trying out Wi-Fi on their planes. And so um, they were testing it out, the, uh, the feature, and so they announced on this flight that they were going to offer free Wi-Fi. So, hey, you can get on if you want to try it out. And within 15 minutes, it crashes, okay? And there is an uproar. People are livid. There is a guy up out of his seat getting in the face of the stewardess, like, how dare you offer something that you can't fulfill? 15 minutes before, they didn't even know it existed. But now, a free gift is an expectation. And man, do we do this with Jesus. Oh, we do it with Jesus. God blesses us with a new car, and then our neighbor's car breaks down, and God's like, you should help him out. And you're like, well, gas money, Jesus, and like, my schedule is so tight, and so no five time. We get that house that we've been wanting, and God's sitting you in here and like, you should probably start a small group and get some people in there. Oh God, their kids are going to put marks all over on my walls and I'm going to have to clean my house every single time when they come over and who knows what they'll do in the bathroom. <laughs> we get a gift and it becomes ours and we forgot the hand that gave it so fast, so fast. Remember God's provision in your life. Everything you have, including the breath in your lungs today, is because of him. Everything comes from him. Number four, respect God's sovereignty. Whew, this is a painful one. Verses 13 through 16. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. When you take an oath, 
Use only his name. Don't worship the other gods of neighboring nations. For the Lord your God who lives among you is a jealous God, and his anger will flare up against you and wipe you off the face of the earth. Don't test the Lord as you did when you complained at Massa. What happened at Massa? Hopefully you're asking that. That's what I asked. So I went back and looked. At Massa, the people had been wandering for a bit in the desert, and they ran out of water. Real physical need, right? Valid need. But it got a little out of control, and within a little bit, they were about to stone Moses, and they're like, God doesn't even exist. A few chapters earlier, they're walking through the Red Sea in the middle on dry ground, and now they're whining about water? For real? But they forgot. See, when God made a choice they didn't understand, the trust ended as soon as it happened. And it's easy to trust God when his opinion matches ours, right? So much harder when he acts like a sovereign, which is what he is. He's sovereign, just in case we're wondering, means the quality or state of having supreme power or authority. And you guys, we're not sovereign. And when we try to bump ourselves up to his level and think like him, we make a mess, a mess, because he alone is the one who sees it all and understands it all. And, and here's, I want you to hear this, okay? The water those people needed was real, right? They had a physical need. God wasn't mad that they had a physical need, okay? When you go through things, when we come to Jesus, we sometimes don't understand why things still seem hard. We're going to go through dark valleys. We're going to go through hard times. We're going to lose our job. Our house is going to get foreclosed on. Our kid's going to get sick. Somebody we love is going to die. And we're going to go, God, I don't understand. That's where faith begins. When we don't get it and we trust him anyway. And we remember, God, you are the one who's in control. And I, I see a mess and I don't understand and it hurts. God's not asking you to suck it up and not need the water. He's asking you to trust him in how he comes through because he's good. He is good. Remember, remember, and respect God's sovereignty. Five, reflect God's character. Verses 17 through 19, you must diligently obey the commands of the Lord your God. All the laws and decrees he's given you, do what's right and good in the Lord's sight. So all will go well with you. Then you'll enter and occupy the good land God gave to your ancestors. So you'll drive out all the enemies just as the Lord said you would. At the Esca Council, we like to say this one like this. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. See, just because you can get someone to comply with you does not mean that that will go into their character. We want people, kids, students, to see God's character in our lives. We spend way too much time in the church trying to get kids and students to follow our rules instead of actually living close enough to them that they can see the character of God and model their lives after ours. It's not about them not riding skateboards in the church or not making a mess. No, 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 no. They need to see how to live this thing out. And they need to see it in proximity, reflect the character of Christ. And I'm not saying like some buddy, buddy, do whatever you want. I'm your buddy. I'm your friend. That's not how Jesus was. Jesus was grace and truth. Okay. He could correct people and kick them in their butt because he lived with them and was in close enough relationship with them that they didn't have to be perfect. They didn't have to just perform. He was close to them so he could call them on their crap, and that's what a generation is desperate for. People who will live in character next to them and show them how to walk with Jesus. And can I just challenge you with this? Listen, 
None of us is perfect. Sometimes we're so afraid that kids and students are going to figure that out. Guess what? They already know. They already know you're jacked up. But when you come and you say, man, I blew it. I'm sorry. What they just learned? Man, I can blow it, and I can say I'm sorry, and I can keep moving forward. Reflect God's character. Live close enough with them. Last one, six. Rehearse God's rescue. Verses 20 through 25 say, In the future, your children will ask you, I love this, what's the meaning of these laws, decrees, and regulations that the Lord our God has commanded us to obey? Then tell them. We were pharaohs, slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out with his strong hand. He did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing terrifying blows against Egypt and Pharaoh and all his people. He brought us out of Egypt so that he could give us this land that he swore to our ancestors. And the Lord our God has commanded us to obey all these decrees and fear him so he can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as he has done to this day. So let me, let me tell you something here. We are living in a current age where a generational gap equals a cultural gap. So I want to make this real today. So all my baby boomers in the room, about to be proud, 1946 and 1964. If you were born between those years, 1946, 1964, stand to your feet, please. Stand to your feet. Be bold. It's okay. Man, we need you, boomers. 1946, 1964. All right, now, where are my millennials at? If you're under the age of 21, stand up, please. Stand up. Stand up, millennials. No, boomers, stand back up, sorry. Stand back up, everybody. Boomers and, uh, boomers and millennials, stand up. What this means is, look around. You guys have as much in common with each other as a person who grew up in America and a person who grew up in China. That's true. It's not some gimmick. This generation has grown up in a completely different culture than what you guys have experienced. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. So what this means is your faith experience is unique, and we need it. We need your stories. We need your miracles. We need to hear where God took you from. We need you to rehearse the rescue you've experienced. And it's not just boomers in the room. Everybody in the room. Every generation, it's described as being in a different culture than the last. This is a gift, not a curse. It means we each have experiences that we can share with each other. And can I challenge you, this generation needs to know more about your salvation than your soapbox. They need to know more about your faith than what you care about politics on Facebook. They need to hear your miracle stories. And can I tell you, if, if you don't have any and you're sitting in here and you're like, man, I just don't really know if I have anything, you might be living too safe of a life. Because James 1 says, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Who wants to lack in nothing? Me. I don't want to lack. So ask God to test your faith. I know it's scary. I know it freaks you out. And some of you sitting here today, you might feel that itch inside of you because there's a dream that you've been pushing down for a while because it freaks you out. But let me tell you, faith begins when you don't understand. Faith begins on the water where things are unstable and unsure. When we don't have it all together, when we don't know how it's going to turn out, our faith becomes stronger. It's a muscle that we have to use. So I challenge you to use it. Rehearse God's rescue. 
I want to wrap up with this. Um, the Lord challenged his people with these things to instruct the next generation, everybody, because he knew what would happen if a generation rose up and they forgot and they didn't know. And it happens just a little bit later. Judges chapter 10. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the things he had done. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who'd brought them out of Egypt. When we forget God, we find ourselves doing things we never thought we would do because we've forgotten who we are. Our identity and God's identity are tied together. Our soul knows it belongs to a Savior. And you guys, there is a whole generation of people who are looking for identity in all the wrong places. They're out there searching because they haven't found it here. And if I can tell you this, this is why this is so hard for me, is because that was me. I was that jacked up kid. Yeah, my life was a mess. I was taking care of my dad when he was in withdrawal and trying to keep my house together. And I didn't go to church because of how the ladies looked at me because I didn't have a dress to wear. And I swore to God that if I went into ministry like he told me, I would never be that kind of pastor. I would never lead that kind of church. You guys, this generation needs somebody to call things out of them, to believe in them enough when they're still a mess and a disaster. All I needed was somebody to speak into my life. And you know where I found it? My school. My teachers cared more about me than my own church did. God, forgive us because we like our music the way that it is because we want our seat to be reserved when we walk into the sanctuary, because we like our church the way it is. Thank you very much. Nobody change anything. Forgive us. There's a generation that is lost that Jesus paid with his blood for. That is our inheritance. When I get to heaven, I don't, I don't want it said that I had a great house or I had a lot of nice things. I want to see faces of kids. And when I see those numbers on the screen, that's what I see. Faces of students that were in our student ministry that are still out there and still searching. And so I implore you, be that church. Are you the adult that you want the kids of this church to become? Are you the adult that you want the world of kids out there to become? If God opened up your pocketbook and he opened up your calendar, what would appear as most important to you? And is that what is most important to God as well? We are the church. We are his people. And this is our responsibility.